Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 95 with our guest, Karen Rands. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey guys, thanks for joining us. You're tuned right into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Our guest today is a nationally recognized expert on angel investing. In fact, she literally wrote the book on the topic, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. She knows how to match companies with investment capital. Meet Karen Rams. Her company, Compassionate Capitalist, serves the two sides of the same coin. The investor looking to grow their money in a suitable business venture, and the entrepreneur who knows how frustrating it is to find the money to grow your business. For the entrepreneur, Karen works with you to understand your value proposition and ensure your message is clear. She helps you determine how much capital you need to reach your goals and put a plan in place to get it. Her unique approach will grow your revenue and find the investors interested in your deal. How cool is that? Help me welcome Karen Rands. How are you, Karen? Excellent. Excellent. Wonderful day and delighted to be on your show, Josh. Thank you. My pleasure. I agree with all of that. Let me look at this from the 10,000 foot view, as they say. Is what you do sort of like Shark Tank without the cameras? (laughs) Uh, yes and no i mean it would be on the investor side of the equation uh to a certain degree in analyzing because each one of those investors that are on the shark tank will assess according to their own situation and the kind of deals that they like you know uh, mr wonderful likes to get a reoccurring revenue stream, like a a percentage of the revenues. And there are certain programs that I describe in the book that that are designed to be exactly that. There's other people that want to get involved and help and and push it forward and be a part of it. And those are the ones that are, are, you know, and there's, we call those execs with checks in, in my world. Um, or they're, you know, they're, they're, they're involved because they're trying to chaperone the deal to a point that it can uh, kind of run on its own. And that's the best way for them to safeguard their investment, you know, and then there's other ones that just want to 
have it do its thing because it's already got traction. So to a certain degree, there's that side of, of what I talk about on the investor side, but then some of the things that they pepper those, those questions that they pepper the companies with are the things that I pepper a company with when I'm trying to get them ready to go get funding so that I can anticipate the kind of investment capital they're going to seek. So they'll go out for that particular type of investor because that works for their their company that the hold and play all those three different types we talked about and then what are those kind of questions that those you know when I put my investor hat on they're not going to be able to answer and they're going to have a failed attempt at raising capital if they don't have answers to those questions or at least you know they, the big problem is a lot of times people just don't know what they don't know mm. and so it's okay to not know the answer as long as to the investor answering asking the question you don't know the answer but this is how I'm going to figure the answer out mm. you know yeah, your funding sources, I know, include 500 private angel investors, 2,000 family fund offices, 300 venture capital and corporate venture funds, et cetera, et cetera. From the entrepreneur's point of view who's listening and tuning in, so we can properly orient ourselves for this potential road, what do we need to know if we are ready, what do we need for your service? What needs to be checked to even know, okay, we can begin a conversation because you have X, Y, and Z in place. <clears throat> Let me answer the question this way. Um, I almost always get companies that are having problems raising capital come to me for help. Okay, so that's the first and foremost. And the fact that they're struggling to raise capital means that there's something not right. So they have to, I, have, I also have people come to me all the time that says, oh, just go out to those 500 or this or that and find me some money, Karen, and then I'll pay you. Well, if they've not been able to go and do it on their own, it's either because their message is broken, there's something broken in their business strategy and go to market or something like that, or they just don't have the time and access to be able to do that. And, they, and so they need to be willing to pay. It's always time and money. They need to be able to willing to pay somebody to go out and, and spend the time, you know, turning over those rocks, kissing those frogs, right? And so, um, so to that, it says, you know, when you're ready is, if it's ideal and it's just really simple, you've raised some money. So there is some litmus that says these people, this group, these folks, and I just need to get to the finish line. Can you help me? Then it's an easy kind of fix. Cause then it's just a matter of, you know, these are the people you haven't thought of or you don't know about it. You can't easily find, but other than that, there's work that needs to be done in order to prepare a company to actually go through the process. And it sounds like that messaging and positioning is a big chunk of getting, getting on the road with you. Oh yeah. There is. So, you know, I, cause I used to run an angel investor events. I had these pitch events and I did for a decade, almost every month we had a pitch event and then I had big giant events with hundreds of people and 20 investors and things like that, that I did. And, um, and it would always, and when I would sit down with a cup of coffee or always, it would always amaze me when entrepreneurs would stand up in front of a people or they would go through this thing where they're talking, they go, the investors just don't get it. I don't understand what's wrong with those investors. They just don't understand my deal and why it's so good. Well, no, it's because you're not telling them, they're not explaining to them and you're not willing to spend the time to ask why it is that they don't get it and learn from that. You know, I have this, 
they call it a you know horse whisperer dog whisperer well so my thing is message whisperer or something like that i'm able to listen to and and it's sometimes it's really painful but go through all of the ways that an entrepreneur explain their business and then recite back to them in you know a few sentences so this is really what you're trying to accomplish and this is what your secret sauce is whatever they're like Oh yeah, I go, they go, I wish I recorded that. That was perfect. How can you do it again? I go, no, I'm not really sure. I got, that was, that's just sort of my thing. So, you know, it's, um, that's the biggest part because if they don't understand the problem you're solving, how you're going to solve it, why there's a problem, how you're going to solve it, how you're going to make money in a very short order of time, they have no motivation to spend 20 minutes trying to figure that out and get it out of you that way. If you can't tell it so that they want more information and they know why, but it's pertinent information, then you, you know, it's a wasted effort. You, you're, it's just, you're burning bridges and yeah. need to stop. I love that. So obviously um, every, every business is a solution to the problem. You have to know what problem you're solving through your product or service. Um, a little, a, a little further than that. It's also about why you, right? Your differentiating factor, all of that, and also your your story. Do you help with all those yeah. elements too? Does that play? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. This idea of the story. I've done a couple of my own podcasts. You know, yeah. the Compassionate Capitalist podcast show that you were a delightful guest on. Well, thank and you. We talked about the story, but since that time, and a little bit before, but it's really come out as the differentiating factor. And I had not, I had not really thought it through that way when I coach com companies about presenting until you revealed it to me and and the things that you describe and then a, 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 call, a call i did the other day a show i did the other day we talked about it and it's come up as part of some of this conscious capitalism stuff and and so the idea is that when you're pitching investors here's the thing so so i'm an investor I know I'm going to be spending 10,000, 100,000, whatever it is, and some number of companies. So I've got my checklist of industry and stage and these kind of, you know, tangible things. And then there's the, the hidden checklist, the subconscious, you know, kind of ones that this is how I'm never going to lose money the next right. time I made that mistake once that I've got. And, and I kind of know that kind of thing. But then when it comes down to it, I've, fit, I've, I've flushed out all of those criteria and now I'm trying to make a decision Should I have finite dollars. I'm trying to make a decision between company A and company B, you know, because I got 10 grand we're doing right now or 25 grand or whatever it is. I'm trying to decide. It does come down to the story. It comes down to the story because that, and even whether it's you're sitting across the, the table from somebody because you hit or you're at an event and there's 40 investors in the room or you're doing something on crowdfunding where you're telling a story via video or something like that it always comes down to that emotional connection that that investor makes where they trust that entrepreneur to when it gets beyond the the black and the white and the dollars and the cents and the dotting the i's and crossing the t's and the check boxes and how do i make a decision between this deal and this deal it will be the story and the emotional connection that you have with that trust factor because of the story with that entrepreneur.
with the person. I know it. I love it. I feel it. I live it. It's not just about the widget or service you're providing. It's, it's you as the person. And like you said, there's this, when the investor is looking between company A or B, um, well, there's also the option of no company, right? Theoretically, right. they can, no, I, I can't. But, but if it's A or B, um, then they're going to, all those subconscious, do I, do I like, like you said, do I connect with this person? Do I trust this person? Can I, like they've said on Shark Tank so many times, um, can I get behind this person and be, you know, because you're in business with that person. Do I like talking to this person? Do I trust this person? So much of that human element comes out that I think goes, goes by the wayside too often from business owners and entrepreneurs who just are focusing on the product or service and almost neglecting the value they bring to the table. Necessary, necessarily so. You must bring that to the table um, as, as often as possible, in, in every way as possible. Right, because when you have, and this goes to how I modify compassionate capitalism, right? To, it, was, it was just originally, it was people that invest time, knowledge, resources, money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs, create wealth. And then earlier when we were talking, we talked about sort of what is the, my biggest message or whatever, right? And that is entrepreneurism is the greatest source of, of wealth creation, or whether you define it as super wealth or just having your own um, control over your time and, and freedom money and how you do it, right? How you do it, whatever you choose to be your income level. But then the second greatest one is investing in those. And the way you make a decision to not just be a capitalist is because there's passion in what that company is doing. Mm. And the only way you identify what the passion is of that company, why will they stay up late at night to accomplish the goals that y'all have agreed on or they say they're going to do? Or why would they you know, do whatever it takes? It's because they have passion in what they're trying to accomplish with the company. And that comes from the story. It's the story. Mm. So true. Let's talk about your company called Compassionate Capitalist. We know what a capitalist is. Why the phrase? How is that relevant to this whole compassion? What, what, how, how does that play into everything? Why that phrase? Well, because so I, so I had heard the phrase. I, I co-opted it or whatever the word is from somebody else, right? So um, there was a book, Rick, uh, Rich DeVos, who's the founder of Amway, one of the founders of Amway, had written many, many, many decades ago uh, called the Compassionate Capitalist or something like that, a Compassionate Capitalist. And he was talking specifically to his view of the multi-level market of giving people a way to supplement their income so they could have time and freedom and then more money to spend on things like that. And, and you know, it was investing your time in other people to teach them how to do that. And so it was specific to that. And so when during the recession, when I was trying to get investors that I knew that were coming to my meetings and looking at these things to get their money off the sidelines to put it to work because I, I, I brought that term back. I'd always had it on my card, but I had brought it, I brought it back at first and foremost and renamed my show um, from the spec talk radio for Southeast private equity conference to uh, compassionate capitalist radio, because I knew there was so much money on the sidelines that was um, just sitting there earning interest and not being put to work to create the jobs, to bring the innovation to the market that would lead to wealth creation. And the best way to grow our economy has been proven time and time again is when we help entrepreneurs lift themselves up and succeed, 
when they succeed, then everything, our communities benefit, the, everything about everything in the United States. And I really have believed for a long time that part of our American DNA here and what is it makes us attractive in so many ways to folks that want to migrate here is because we have this ability to create and on this entrepreneurism in our DNA, whether it's selling, you know, even like I was driving downtown Atlanta yesterday, um, and there is a guy, as small as you get, he's, a doll, he's got a grocery cart with selling socks and selling stuff to the homeless people or who, you know what I mean, are walking down the street, the college kids, who knows? He was like a little tiny, tiny pop-up store. He is an entrepreneur. Now, he's not the kind of entrepreneur, but he knows. He works really, really hard. He might actually have a storefront one day. He might come up with his own invention of, of, of creative ideas of something or this or the, uh, the other. So whether you, whatever the smallest level that you started and you go, that's, you know, entrepreneurism. And so buying and selling real estate, great. Buying and selling stock, great but that doesn't benefit anybody other than the person that sold it and the person that bought it and then can go turn around and sell it again or make some other money on it it's i mean there is there's some benefit but there's not a ripple effect of benefit and it's only when we look at the assets of investing at in entrepreneurism do we see the ability to change the world okay mm. We change the world when we invest in entrepreneurism and we invest in these innovative ideas. There's enough. I was had a call the other day. He's going to be on my show in the future. Um, but he's, you know, he, and he has started sort of like this crowdfunding kind of a deal, but he has this massive network because he was a financial planner and market maker guy. And um, he looked at it and he said, and with all the family offices out there, that's the thing. I'm really working hard on the family offices because they do a lot of real estate investment. There's not a lot of angel investing going on in family offices. And if you want to not just give money away and donate it, there's a, there's benefit in that. But if you want to be a change maker, we could solve every form of, of cancer out there. We could solve every problem that we have with water purity. We could solve every problem that we have with our environment, every problem that we have with children's learning. You know what I mean? The fact that we have this disconnect in our school system. We can solve every problem out there if people would take their money out of, in their, and take some portion of their asset and wealth creation strategy and put it to work in the entrepreneurs and in the innovation that they feel passionate about. And they help move that ball forward. We could, we, we could solve the problems of our world if we just took, if we reallocated the capital that's out there into entrepreneurism to grow it. I love that. And it seems like so many people, I didn't, I didn't know that this was even remotely possible to me. I invest in stocks. I invest in the stock market. Um, but now I'm, I'm opened up. I'm intrigued. I'm like, I, I'm an entrepreneur myself. So this taps into my goodness, I could work with you and you could help me allocate some money to invest in private companies of other entrepreneurs that are doing something that is meaningful and excite, exciting to me that I can make a, a difference. I mean, it's just fascinating that this even exists, a whole thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the, and the fact that see, I take it for granted that it, like people know this stuff, right? Because I'm so entrenched in it. Yeah. And um, when the jobs act, when it changed, where you didn't have to be, have $250,000, $300,000, $400,000 a year in income to be able to invest in these private companies. When that changed, started to change in 2012, yeah. I said, oh, everybody's going to want to be figuring out how to do this. They're, they're going to be, and, no, and there's nobody teaching them how to do this. There's still nobody teaching them how to do this. And I was like, okay, 
you know, this is, this is my new mission, my passion, you know, and I, I taught, we talked earlier about sort of like this wake up point I had as I was approaching my 50th year on this world, um, on this earth, I said, nobody else is going to do it, Karen. You got to step up. You got to do this. You have to be the one that takes this idea of compassion capitalist forward. And it, it may not be, it may be a marathon. It's not a sprint, but if you're going to leave a legacy, Let's leave a legacy that says 20 years from now, because that's about, if you look back at real estate, think about 20 years ago, maybe 25, you know, who invested in real estate? Only the most wealthy, only institutional investments. And what changed? We had government regulations that changed that allowed you, how you ta your tax write-offs on that stuff and that investment property. We had access to capital that changed. That was um, how they loaned against investment properties or other properties that weren't your primary home. And, and, and the, me the uh, mechanism to be able to, to judge that, that risk. So capital became available. And then you started to have education. So the ability to do it became available. And then you had education. And now I venture to say you probably get every month, at least once a month, a postcard to invite you to some seminar to learn how to invest in real estate or sell by this guy's system to invest in real estate, right? And so it's a cottage industry. And I'm creating that. My, that's my intention, you know, to create that cottage industry. And if there's people that want to partner with me to help me get that message out there, then yes, bring it on. Wow. I want to go back and see how you got to this amazing place in life. Take us back to the very beginning, if you will. What was life like for Karen Rands growing up as a young child? Okay. As a young child. So my parents divorced when I was five. And so I was raised by a single mom who uh, was a teacher and then she got a real estate license. So she dabbled in, you know, entrepreneurism as a real estate person, but um, was always uh, much more on the mental side of that equation being, um, uh, she wasn't as entrepreneurism as a real estate person as she was just thankful to be making a little bit extra money. And so, um, and so I didn't really have a true appreciation of what entrepreneurism was. And I did, wasn't really around my dad or understood what he did and I and any of this um, until much, much later, until I was in my teens and into college, did I truly understand the disconnect. I, I came to understand why they fell in love and what was they that was exciting to each the each of them about the other person. And then I totally understood why they that fell apart and stuff. And part of it was my dad was always a inventor, entrepreneurist type of person. And um, he, and, and, you know, with that, a lot of times comes um, uncertainty of income and so on and so forth and willingness to sacrifice. And that um, my mom was, you know, had grown up in an environment where fear of not having was her greatest um, fear. So, you know, the risk part of that. It, it, so anyway, so that was something, a dynamic that I, I learned over time. I had by probably about high school, I knew, I think, you know, people, there's this whole question of are people born as an entrepreneur, born or bred kind of a deal or, or raised or reared. So are you born to be it or are you reared to be an entrepreneur? And um, I think I had a, an element of being born to be an entrepreneur inside of me. And then I've, you know, worked over the many years to learn how to be more effective at that. And it's been through my time at co time in 
in corporate America, my time in working with lots and lots and lots of entrepreneurs, and I've, I've assimilated that information that I then can go out and share it with other entrepreneurs on what other people have done. I have insight into that. And so um, it wasn't, uh, you know, so like a little bit of my dad. So he, um, he was one of his first taste of being sort of an inventor kind of a person. It was in a job. He was on a very small team that designed the first orbiter that went around the world, the satellite, the first orbiter satellite. He was working for Hughes Aircraft at the time. And then they had a downsize of the aerospace industry. He was laid off and he went about inventing other things. So he invented some of the first exercise barbells. Mm-hmm. He invented... Um, Back when it was really big to try to get a deep tan, he had these these foil things you would wear on your face and stuff like that um, to do these things. He just had, you know, all the stuff he tried to invent, um, a collapsible bumper for cars to protect cars when they were in crashes. I wonder why that never actually, it'd be interesting to see, you know, where that went. But the one that he finally, he also tried to get involved with doing some stuff to save the oceans with the Cousteau foundation um and so i discovered a lot of this after the fact when i was going through his memorabilia um and uh after he passed and i realized and i discovered that mm. the thing that he, he actually became so he was a big skier so he loved to ski and then he discovered uh he started his first sort of real entrepreneur thing that started making him money was iron on patches Okay, back in the day. And he would screen print these things to make these iron-on patches. That was like a long time ago, people ironed on patches on denim jackets and did all this kind of stuff before there was screen printing. And so he would screen print um he was he had make he would make games. He had this ski game he had made that had a little magnet guy you would trace down the you put a magnet underneath the player and you race down the hill because he was a big skier and he was selling at these ski uh events and then um somebody said oh you should look into screen printing and the patches he started doing the patches and so he had he was on the mcgovern campaign doing patches he did the with some of the first rolling stones lips you know tongue stuff right on patches that he sold for a concert when they came to town in LA back then and you know so he just had all these things and um that he was doing and then he came hamburger hamlet was um was the uh big they're still out there in California and they were a big uh, uh place in Hollywood and they wanted a hamburger on a t-shirt that had all the colors but they wanted it as a screen print. They wanted it as a patch because, you know, patches, they wanted something that was screen printed. So he had to figure out a way to create screens that would align your green your for mm. your lettuce, your red for your tomato, your brown, you know, mixed colors for brown for your, your hamburger meat, your yellow for your mustard, your bun, all that stuff are the colors of a stacked hamburger. And so he invented the very first uh, – screen printing wheel that would align colors to do multiple colors up to five colors. Nobody had done five colors at that point in time. And so that was the thing that really started to create his wealth. And I discovered that he, um, he didn't do that until he was 50. And so I was approaching 50. I'd had this setback because of the recession. And I was like, Oh my God, my time's not up. I'm not done. 
I'm just getting started with all of I learned over the last 20 years and the mistakes that I've made. Now is my perfect time to go forth and accomplish the things that I've always dreamed that I was capable of accomplishing because now I really, hopefully I can work smarter and not just harder, but work smarter in it. And that's really when the birth of the Compassionate Capitalist Movement um, took ground in my heart to make happen was being inspired by that. And I discovered that I really was was born to be this entrepreneur. So much value, Karen, that you just shared in, in, in that segment alone, just detailing the, the journey of your father. And if I heard this correctly, a lot of this wasn't uh, made um, aware to you until after his death, right? Yeah, well, so I, when he was, when I was in college, he was doing the screen printing stuff. He started doing that about when I was in high school. Hmm. And so when I would, at that time, I'd started going out to visit him. So I would hang out at his, his print yeah. shop. And I learned this stuff and I knew he had a patent on this and he had patented, he had two big patents. One was that and, the, and he had gotten the patent on the, the uh, car bumper thing that never took off and he got that patent and then he would just invent stuff. And he also had this ingenuity that he just never figured out he could patent, but he probably could because of his past in aerospace where his printers were, uh, his screen printing things were a, a hit because they were so lightweight because he didn't weld stuff together. He heated the metal to bend it. So he did design work that he probably couldn't got a patent, but he didn't know it at the time. Um, and so I would then in college, I would go, whenever he came to the East coast, I would go to trade shows and work trade shows for him selling his screen printing stuff. And he had gas heaters and he had done screen printing for caps and he had done all the, he had like a whole line of products. Ranar, R-E-N-A-R yeah. was his company, which still exists today, but he, um, he would, um, and so he did, so he had, uh, you know, he, I just, I've been a part of it, but I didn't really understand the impact of it till he was on the cover of screen printing magazine as the the godfather or the grandfather of the screen printing industry because he was the one that had invented it. It's, you know, it's fast forward. It's all kinds of digital printing and stuff. Now they don't do that stuff as much anymore, but yeah, that was really just a, a huge part of kind of being in it. But I think a lot of times our parents, there's so much that our parents do and don't, but we just don't seem to either care about, Mm. we don't know, we take it for granted. I mean, I have lots of stuff that my mom was a maverick in that I had no idea until she passed also. What I love uh, in part uh, that you said was two things really stuck out. One was that early on, obviously um, your father had this in his blood. He, he, he could not do anything else. I mean, he proved that in his life. He just kept going back to inventing, creating, uh, building business entrepreneurship. Um, But then you, you made a point that, It seems like a reason that your parents grew apart and ultimately split was there's something to be said, right, about the entrepreneur who who only sees this one path and only has this passion. And there is a certain level of sacrifice and balance needed. That was a conflict, right, that they... They just couldn't work out that conflict between the entrepreneur and a spouse of... Oh, sure. And I think a big part of it is communications between couples. Um, One of the things I tell entrepreneurs when I do my workshops on business planning is that the very first step you need to do is you need to assess the um, opportunity and figure out this kind of a basic, whether it's just penciled out on two pieces of paper or whatever it is, it's, it's how, you know, what's the real market? What's the, all the, the real fundamentals of whether this idea has potential to get to the thing and be better for you than a job. 
okay? That, you know, job's got, in theory, has benefits. Job has an ability for you to leave at five o'clock at night. Job has time off. Job has, you know, things like that that might be able, you know, compared to what you can do as an entrepreneur. And the very first investor you have to get in your business is your spouse and your family. They have to say, yes, we will, I, as your spouse, whether you're a female or a male as the spouse, I will pick up the slack when it comes to the kids. I will help you. I will, you know, you're working late. I'm not going to bitch and moan, excuse me, and I'm not going to complain about that you're missing dinners all the time. I'm going to explain to them what you do, but you also at the time, Saturday morning from this to this is my time to go do what I want to do or this is you have to go spend quality time not on your phone not on this with the kid you know what I mean you work out what how are you as a team going to be it because your first board of advisor your first investor because they're investing in the family is your spouse and if you don't have that community if you can't compel that to them that they get it and it's going to be some you know be financial considerations in there as well then you're not ever going to be able to convince an investor because you're always going to have that conflict at home or that challenge at home. You're not going to be a team at home when it comes to how, and a timeline on it, a timeline that says, okay, we're going to do this, this, this as a team, as a family. And then, and this is what we expect to get out of it. And if we don't get that out of it, then we're going to regroup and figure out, do we need to take a different direction? Do we need to do something else? Do we need to do this as a part-time thing? What do we need to do? And fantastic. And the other thing I love that you uh, pointed out was that, and I've heard this um, multiple times over the past while, is that real success on a, on a big level doesn't happen until you're after 50. It's a fascinating concept. Well, I will, you know, everybody has their time and their season and there's, a, you know, I would be way wrong to say that 30 somethings aren't going to, I mean, there's lots and lots of 30, I mean, the 20 somethings that come out of school with a certain knowledge, a technical knowledge that they have, they have, um, you know, there's, but the ones that are unseasoned because they don't have necessary life experiences or the work experiences, it's critical for them to get folks around them as a team or as advisors that have had some of that experience. And if you, I mean, I find it for myself. I don't have the same hunger that I had back when I was 30. I mean, I'm committed and I'm passionate, but I mean, quite frankly, I kind of enjoy my life. And so, you know, I, I find that it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, so you have to, that, that, that gut rot, rot hunger, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a balance of that. And there's uh, one of the things I try to tell people that are execs in companies, that wake up and they're like bored with their job and they're like, they've reached the pinnacle of what they can do in the corporate world. And they're like, what's next for me? I need a new challenge. And they're like, maybe I'm just going to go and blow it all off. I'm going to go and, and in my book, I have a story that I tell in there that's called the making of a compassionate capitalist. And it's exactly this guy. I call him, I call him Joe. And, um, and he was a guy, he was the president of a U.S. operations for a foreign-owned company. He was, you know, at that point, he was trying to decide, do I go and buy a company? Do I go start a company? Do I go do something else? Because I'm, 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 he was bored with what he was doing. And he met me and he saw, he never heard of angel investing. He saw it on my card. He was like, what's that? I go, come to my meeting, you know, start getting familiar with this. 
and he didn't leave his job. What he did was take his excess, you know, corporate bonus money. He had a big fat 401k, he took some of that, put it into a self-directed IRA so he could invest like people do with real estate through their retirement fund. And he was, and he started investing in companies and he got that passion he was searching for without, it's kind of like, am I going to cheat on my wife? No, that's a, probably not a good thing or buy a car. But you know, it's like he got the passion that he was looking for by investing in this innovation and being a part of seeing yeah. these things and having this swagger. It was amazing to watch him walk into the room and the swagger of like, oh yeah, I invested in this company that yeah. does this. And I invested in this company that does this. And guess what? He still got to take off early on Friday and play golf. He still got to take the big fancy vacations with his family to resorts. He still had all the perks and the benefits of the corporate gig, but he got to help entrepreneurs achieve their goals, and he got the passion out of that, and he was a passive investor because he just did his job thing, right? That's what I was saying earlier. It's amazing that that even exists for an entrepreneur. No matter what side of the coin you're on, you can be on both, like he found himself. So this, this brand of mine, The Hidden Entrepreneur, you know, is found on the basis that I spent all of my life hiding hiding in fear, my power, my ability. Can you take us through a time where you found yourself fearful, scared out of your mind, but you knew you had to work right through that? Oh, that's a really easy one. That's the, the I would say my five years, let's see, 2012. So my five years of wandering in the forest, if you will, the forest of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, Okay. And um, because, you know, quite frankly, the recession, I, I, when I started my, so my model had always been connecting entrepreneurs and investors. And I did it through this angel investor group that I kind of took over from the founder that was looking for somebody to, he wanted to retire and, and get out of the business of doing that. And I saw it as a way to marry up with the entrepreneurs that I was working with to give them a, a platform to raise capital. And, um, and so, uh, I knew that the business model was broken, but I had one foot stuck in that, and that was the way we made money trying to pivot to a different way that was going to be a better way. But, um, and I, and I, and I really struggled. I went through a whole, whole plan, business plans, even a, like a, a feeble attempt at a capital raise to build before there was crowdfunding, one of these portals to, to connect all this stuff up, had this big vision back when LinkedIn was just an in infancy. So, you know, I was ahead of my time and, and, and anyway, and so, and I had this real belief and passion that this was, that we were going to change the world. We were going to fix this inefficiency in the marketplace. We were going to, you know, I mean, and then the recession happened and the things that I had been using to make money in my old way didn't even work anymore because of the fact all these investors still have desire to invest, but because most of my investors were people that had day jobs, they ran their own companies or were execs in companies, they had to keep their own businesses going during the recession. So they couldn't take the time to do the due diligence and the things to actually stroke the checks that they needed to do to feel comfortable doing that. So we were sort of stagnant for about a couple of years where I was losing money. And I said, I can't do this anymore. And so I shut all that stuff down. And then I went about, and I had some family issues. It was also about the time my mom and my dad were passing and my daughter was going through some stuff in high school. And so, you know, I, I was like, 
I'm going to go do something else for a minute. I mean, I still consulted and stuff, but during that time, and I'm going to lick my wounds, oh, you know, kind of a thing. And so I went through probably, and then I got into, you know, kind of enjoying the life of half leisure, you know what I mean? And, uh, and doing a little real estate, doing a little of this, ladies' lunches, you know, whatever. And so when I knew with the Jobs Act thing happening and that there was this huge opportunity that I felt like it was the one thing that was really solving, potentially take the barrier down between entrepreneurs and investors. And it was geared up towards, you know, entrepreneurs get a lot of help to figure that out. And there's all these ways, but on the other side of that coin, there's going to be all these investors that need to come to the table to invest in all these entrepreneurs that now have these new ways to raise capital. And nobody's going to be helping them do that. And the great experiment of the Jobs Act you know, would fail. And the worst thing that could happen would be for somebody to go out there and stroke their $2,000 check or their $10,000 check. And it just cause, Oh yeah, I want to do this. I saw this video. It's really cool. I think this thing is the best. And they lose their money six months later and they tell all their friends never do that. And the ugly reputation or the redhead stepchild that investing in private companies has right now would be even worse. It would be a two-headed, red-headed stepchild kind of a thing, you know, versus just something that is misunderstood and needs to, you need to understand it so you can, you know, make it be part of your investment family, if you will. And so, mm. and so that was when, and then I think and grow rich really helped me. I had to really then go pluck those weeds out of my brain mm -hmm. because I had all a lot of stinking thinking and I had a lot of those little voices that would say, Oh, well, what makes you think you can do it this time, Karen? You know, and I had to overcome that and get beyond that because if not me, then who? Not now, then when? And um, I just have to, I, I don't know exactly the path I'm going to be on to accomplish this, but I know I had to do it. And I had to remember the lessons learned from prior so I don't, I, I don't do myself by repeating my mistakes from before. What was... What was the answer, Karen? What makes you think you can do this? How did you answer that for yourself? Um, <laughs> I don't want to be so bold as to say, but I'm going to say it. I'm the only one that gets it. And so, I mean, that's it. Go ahead. I, when I talk to angel investors that are the big super shark tank people, and I say, oh, you got to be able to teach the people that only have the $2,000 per on how to do this. You need to teach them how to do this. They, they're like, why? You know, and then I was like, all right. I mean, I mean, literally, I'd be talking to people, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be doing this. And they were like, why? Why would you do that? Who's that? Or when I talk about there's this big gap for companies that have raised a little bit of money or even if they grew organically, they figured out and they're like at that 3 million, 4 million, 5 million, under 10 million in revenue. And they have a new product they want to bring out or they've stagnated and where they are because they can't get any more capital because they missed the VC game. And they're in this, what I call the capital abyss. They could be a 20, 30, 40, 50 million, hundred million dollar company. If they just got another five or $10 million in to go write themselves and get these new products out and go do these things that, you know, we need to educate these people that there's, depending on which list you look at, there's seven million, five to eight million accredited investors off of a W-2 in the United States that do not invest in entrepreneurs. Wow. Okay. They don't do it. They don't even, I don't come to find out. They don't even know that they can. All right. Mm, and there so you go. that's what I'm saying. They don't even know that they can and nobody's telling them that they wow. can or how to do it. 
Wow. And so since I get it and I see it's so crystal clear that there's this problem to be solved, I just have to figure out a way to get my voice out there, books, podcasts, speaking engagements, that this is the best way to grow an economy and a community. It's the best way to create wealth and have an impact on the world. You know, it's the, it's mm. the best of all this stuff. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm one person in, in a loud world of, of ideas and knowledge and things like that. But, and I'm just doing it. I'm just, I just took it on because yeah. nobody else is talking about that. There's only two other relevant books about angel investing out there. And neither one of them talk about how and why you should be an angel investor. Wow. They just talk about, you know. Oh. making money at it, but they don't even, they don't talk about the basics of it. And it's a win-win for everybody, both sides, all sides. So help us wrap this up for those listening into a nice tidy bow for the entrepreneur, let's say, um, who, who loves all of this. What is the one great next step that they should be taking? What action should they put in place next? I would say that they're, um, depending on, regardless of, of um, okay, here, here it is. So regardless of the stage that you're, that you're in, or you know, from startup to a growth stage, regardless of the industry that you're in, okay, um, the same way that you figure out and you spend time trying to figure out who your ideal customer is, so that you can message to that customer and you're going to go and fill your funnel of these people and you got a process of when you're, of how you're going to um, take them through this funnel and convert them into buyers, okay? Shift your paradigm on investors to the same way and say, why, what is it about me that's gonna make this investor and who is that investor? What do they look like? What do they, what do they care about? What problem am I solving for them? What need am I fulfilling for them that's going to make them, one, want to come into my funnel? Then you figure out how to get them in your funnel, but then make, take them through the process, okay? So, you know, taking them through that process that, because, you know, when it gets down to, and I have a formula for all this stuff, but when it gets down to that, you know, converting side of it, that, you know, there's, there's some tangible and intangible things about that. But before you can attract them into your funnel to make a buying decision of your equity, you got to know why they're going to, why will they care? And so I have this thing, I, I copyrighted a WIC statement, why an investor cares. So you come up with, some people call it an elevator pitch, whatever. I call it your succinct thing that is, why an investor cares because when they read that hear that then they're going to go oh i care about that same way with an uh, with attracting an, a customer you're solving a customer problem what problem are you solving for the investors mm. what is it about me you say so valuable and again i'm sure if you do that, whether you're ever going to attract an investor or even look to do it is almost irrelevant because you will still succeed and it will still be tangible and beneficial to all of your business to even get that message in place. I will leave you with this final question. Karen Rands, how would you like to be remembered? The founder of the Compassionate Capitalist Movement. Wonderful. That is something that everybody that it becomes second nature 
the way people think about real estate now, and they strive to take whatever money they get, they strive to figure out how to do that, that it becomes something that people strive to invest in entrepreneurs. It becomes as an equal citizen in the investment portfolio as stocks and real estate. And that came out of my my goals and my views and my visions and my passion for what I call the capacity capital movement. Love everything about this, everything about you. Thank you for joining us. Really, really exciting dialogue. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. Love being on the show. Everybody wants to hear anything in my website's up there, but if you're not watching, karenrands.co, everything you need to know about me can be found right there. Love it. And we'll link to all of that. And I thank everybody tuning in, whether it's to the live broadcast or the replay in its native podcast form on Apple Podcasts, Google, or Spotify. Head on over, leave a review. I love hearing what you think. We're going to do this again before too long. Thanks for tuning in. Until we do it again, go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.